Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this magnificent privilege, this honor of gathering together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for giving us the very bread of life to, to dine on, that we might break it together and fellowship in this unique way on a Sunday morning. Father, thank you for the completed canon, for affording us the time and such so that we might receive your wisdom, relish it, enjoy it, and spread it throughout a world that seems to be accelerating away from your Son. Father, we pray for those that are sick in the congregation that earnestly desire to be here but cannot be. We pray that they know that our hearts are with them we desire to see them back in their seats. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, and for the opportunity and the privilege of bringing the gospel of your Son out to them so that we might have the honor of spending eternity with some additional brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this message title is, Why are the Apostles so encouraging by grace they were prepared part 61 uh, just a heads up if you didn't read this weekend's blog please do so immediately please this was one of the ones that just really is a standout statement from god the holy spirit it's one of the blogs that i wish honestly i could just somehow imprint on every person's heart in the world it's titled, Oh, Deep Down They're a Good Person. Really? Really? Deep down? And frankly, not that it matters what my favorites are, but it's one of my favorite blogs of all time. And not because it's especially well written by me. I mean, funny story, I have my old track coach is also a English teacher, retired. And when I see him at the track meets, he's like, you know, the comma always goes inside the quotes. I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> and he's like, he's nice about it, but he corrects me. So I know that I'm not the greatest writer. It has nothing to do with me. It's the content. So it's the content that strikes at the heart of the matter in most unbelievers and, unfortunately, many so-called Christians. Here are a couple of excerpts from that blog. The world and its father, the devil, who is the father of lies, John 8:44, wants mankind to believe himself inherently good, only plagued by the external pressures of disease, able to deliver himself by himself and for himself. 
If man believes this, he no longer has a need for the Savior. Do you get it? That's what Satan wants. He wants the world to believe that, oh, deep down, past all the diseases and the disorders and the, the white noise and this, that, and the other, oh, they're really a good person. That's what Satan wants you to believe, because if you believe that you're a good person, all you have to do is ferret through all the details, right? Just rummage enough and long enough throughout the course of your life, exhaust yourself in the process, and eventually, hopefully, you'll find the good self deep buried in there. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That person never seeks for a savior because they're their own savior. What do they need a savior for if they can save themselves? That's the whole point. How convenient it is to Satan's ploy to simply lie about man's inherent condition. How accommodating this lie is to the human flesh, the very entity that despises the spirit of Christ. How convenient, how accommodating that lie is to our enemies who really want nothing to do with the gospel who hate me right now for teaching it, who hate you right now for listening to it. The amazing part about this particular lie is that most Christians that I've met, including, frankly, all of us to some degree, are tainted by this lie. We've just grown up in it, you know, I can't speak for other countries, but I know in America, we've grown up with this thing. You turn the television on, it's always the same story. Oh, deep down, they're a good person. Just excuse their whatever, their ridiculousness. No, really, honestly, inherently, they're awful. The Bible says they're spiritually dead. Don't believe me? Think about this. Ever said about someone you love, I mean, I'm just as guilty. Oh, you know, he or she's a good person. You know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. They could care less about Christ, but, oh, somehow, oh, they're a good person. Leave them alone. They're a good person. And yet they're an unbeliever. How can they be good if the following scripture exists contrary to that statement? Go to Romans 7.18. You tell me, how can they be good? Romans 7.18. And I'm not talking about, and the blog gets into this in greater detail, I'm not talking about, you know, some morality, because the world does have a morality. There are so-called, quote-unquote, good people, upstanding citizens, and by the world's standards, guess what? The world says they're good, doesn't, doesn't it? Oh, well, so-and-so down the street, look at it. They're like, you know, commissioner. They're like a selectman, and they're always doing, like, volunteer. And they're doing blood drives, and they're doing this, and they're doing that. And, and, but they want nothing to do with Christ. So there's a certain, quote, good morality, even in society. Thank God for that. I believe the Holy Spirit is the ultimate restrainer so that we don't uh, all just murder ourselves in the flesh. But there's a lot of so-called good people in this world. But what does the Bible say about that? Romans 7, 18, Apostle Paul says, For I know, he doesn't say I think, he says I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. What did you say about that then? 
What do you say about that then? Would you want me to lie and say, oh, no, 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 Paul didn't mean this, or try to find some goofy little loophole? No. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In an unsaved person, that's where they are. That's all they are. They abide in the flesh. They've not been made new. And as far as Paul, the predominant writer of the New Testament, was concerned, he wrote this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. In other words, you know, in the context of Romans 7, you know, that was that war that was going on. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do, etc., etc. It's the war between the new self and the old. And the old is the dead, the dead man, the flesh, the old creature, the one that we're born with, everyone, even the cute little babies. You know, oh, how can that cute little baby be not good? Oh, she even smells good. Oh, look at me. How dare you, Mr. Bald Guy, say that my child is no good inherently? I didn't say that. I mean, I do say it because that's what I believe, but I'm certainly not the author of that truth. You got that problem? You have to take it up with God. And see, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to contend with God. Because like Romans 1 says, they know God exists. And that's a fight they're a little fearful of. It's much easier to pick a fight with a guy like me than it is with the God of the universe. So Paul said it very clearly. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Again, what we have to understand is the principle on the board, how convenient it is to Satan's ploy to simply lie about man's inherent condition, how accommodating this lie is to the human flesh the very entity that despises the Spirit of Christ. What we have to realize is why this is what this blog was about. It wasn't to cast stones. It wasn't to do anything other than to realize why would Satan want us to believe this particular lie, that we are somehow inherently good. Well, from our previous principle, if man believes this, he no longer has a need for the Savior. That's the point. If you think you're inherently good and you just got to ruffle through some things and, you know, work out your problems or rid yourself, rid your life of your so-called demons, then eventually your belief is that you're going to shed all the things that have been suppressing you from your, you know, inherent goodness and you're going to emerge like a butterfly. <laughs> That's a lie. What you're going to emerge as is a pile of poop. And you're going to smell even worse. Sorry, Sunday morning. Visitors. <laughs> you're not going to merge. You, the only thing that's going to merge when everything else is wiped away is your flesh, which, as Paul just said, can't do any good. So if we cut to the chase, like everything we encounter in this world, this is about the gospel. Like everything. This is about the gospel. Satan could care less. Think about this. Satan could care less if you go to college or not. He could care less or have a good job or how many kids you have. He really doesn't care. These are all what the Bible calls the details of life. Set up by people that think and promote that people are born inherently good. 
That's what you have to think about. Big picture, people. It's a big old lie. All meant to make people their own saviors so that they don't turn to the Savior, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Satan's a genius. So unless said details are detracting from the gospel being resident in your life, Satan and the kingdom of darkness could care less. If it takes you away from Christ, yeah, they might even throw a couple of, you know, a couple of gallons of gas on the fire to fuel your desire for so-called worldly success. If it's going to keep you from the gospel, what Satan is really after is the gospel. This is the reason for the last two or so whole years from this pulpit. That's what we've been doing the last couple of years. Why the gospel reload? Why so much focus on the gospel? Because when you get the gospel right, and you start seeing the big picture right here, you realize that it's all about the gospel. It's either being reaffirmed or defended in some way, shape, or form. And everything else is just a detail based on some era of time, etc., etc., some culture, some tradition, blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, Satan and the kingdom of darkness and your own flesh are really trying to detract from the gospel. That's it. Isn't that easy? You know what? That's why a little kid, I shouldn't say too little, but a small person can understand the basics of the gospel. You shouldn't have to be a Ph.D., to be able to read your Bible comfortably on your own. So what Satan is really after is the gospel. Again, this is why we've had the last two years from this pulpit. Do not be deceived into thinking anything less. It's the reason the Lord even had me write that wonderful blog as well. Why little insertions like that? To protect the gospel. That's the true motivation behind the very heart of this ministry, frankly. It's the gospel. Love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the true motivation. Love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation is everything. Everything. What are we talking about? Why are we celebrating this or that in the lives of other people? Why are we celebrating someone getting into MIT? Big deal. You, God gave you a brain and now you're going to be arrogant about it? Now you're going to take all the credit? Big deal. So you had 28 kids. I don't know how your uterus is doing, but God bless you, right? I'm just using Old Testament, right? Blessings to have kids, you know, this type of thing. I'm just saying. It doesn't matter. Who cares? At the end of the day, salvation is everything. What good is any conversation with anybody if they're not saved? Honestly, what are we promoting? What are we celebrating? I'm not detracting from any of those things. You want to have 30 kids? Go for it. It's not the point. What good is any other conversation if we're talking to a dead person? Because that's what the Bible says. If you're not saved, you are dead. And if you never, if you never receive the gospel, then you will, as Jesus himself said, die in your sins. There's a reason why Jesus Christ himself spent his life spreading the good news about himself, about salvation, that is. A person who understands what eternal separation from God means doesn't want his worst enemies to endure it. 
Go to John 8.23. John 8.23. This is what it's about, my friends. If you haven't simplified your system of thinking yet, please start now. It's very simple. It's meant to be simple. You know, like, like our little motto on the website says, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Not complexity in whatever the opposite of purity is. Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It's not hard. John 8.23, man likes to make it hard. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You might argue that some people deserve to go to hell. Oh, I love this argument. Given their, you know, given their apparent current disdain for the Lord. Oh, they deserve to go to hell. And you know what? It's actually a true statement. They do deserve to go to hell. <laughs> but isn't that true for all of us? Oh. Oh. But we like to point fingers. But we like to forget. Go to Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1. Have we forgotten where we've come from? We're all born spiritually dead, separated from God. What do we expect? What do we deserve? Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now check this out. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, God died for the ungodly. Have we so soon forgotten? Were you not helpless? Hopeless? I was. I was saved in the first place. It's how I approached the gospel in the first place. I'm a wretch. I need a Savior. You see, that's the thing we started off with. If you don't think you need a Savior, are you ever going to ask for one? Are you ever going to receive the gospel proper? You might say a little prayer just to make sure or hedge a bet. But if you don't understand your own depravity, you're missing the point. Salvation is not a ticket to heaven. It's deliverance from sin itself. Something you were born in. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps the good man somehow or someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we ought never become judges when it comes to others. Some might say, oh, they deserve hell. Well, we all deserve hell. We all deserve these things. Consider that even Jesus, during his ministry on earth, did not come to judge, but rather came to save. Go to John 12, 44. Well, what was Jesus' attitude then? Did he run around pointing fingers and judging? No. So should we be doing that thing? I mean, if the Messiah himself, if the, the man after whom the gospel is named didn't run around judging people, but rather wanting to save them, what do you think we should be doing? John 12, 44, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So even in his own earthly ministry, his desire, his heart's desire was to save people, not to judge. Judgment comes later. Do you understand? Again, even Jesus during his ministry on earth did not come to judge, but rather came to save. And just as a side note, I just alluded to it. Christ is the final judge, but that is the resurrections at the resurrection, strictly speaking. So we're talking about the end of it all. That's when judgment really is finalized. He came to save. So if our Messiah came to save and that was his earthly ministry and we've all become ministers of reconciliation, what do you think our job is? To judge or to seek and to save? <laughs> you see, Satan knows that. He knows what the principles are in the Word of God and he's trying to keep you from it with little lies that, such as people are inherently good. He's not going to come out and say and speak directly against the Bible, per se, although the world seems to be bolder in that area. It used to be, you know, 50 years ago, no one, no one would attack, you know, a church or a minister or the Bible or Jesus Christ. You know, they would just kind of disagree. Now it's, it's like an assault. It's an all-out assault. People are much more bold when it comes to these things. Nonetheless, up here on the board, the gospel heart. Christ's heart was on the gospel during his ministry, even though he had the authority to judge. And he will be sitting on the throne, and he will judge. But his heart was on the gospel, you see. So we too ought to have our hearts set on the gospel, and not just for our loved ones, but even our enemies. Go to Luke 6.27. Luke 6.27 it's really easy, isn't it, to at least take the time and energy to evangelize people that we care about. But what about our enemies? Luke 6.27. What did Jesus say about that? Luke 6.27. But I say to you who hear, 
Love your enemies. Oh, man. Yeah. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. What does the Bible... The Bible says you overcome evil with evil? No. You overcome evil with good. Hmm. It's evil to judge another person. It's good to love them. doesn't mean you have to befriend the world. It means you love them enough to tell them the truth. You were born depraved. You need a Savior. Whether you like the sound of that is not the issue. Whether mommy or daddy or your teachers or whoever it is you've been listening to, your, uh, your tapes of Tony Robbins or whatever, you know, that big tall guy that like, speaks all about you know, bettering yourself, that guy. Whoever you're listening to, it's garbage. Throw it out. You were born wretched. Believe it. And be thankful. Be thankful that someone was a friend enough to tell you to your face. And if it means some guy like me, I'm fine with that. You don't have to like me. But respect what I'm saying because you know that this is where I'm getting it from. I didn't pull this out of thin air. The last thing I want to do is start fabricating doctrines. God knows that happens. I gave you some wisdom from Charles Spurgeon on Thursday, and I just want to reiterate a little bit of it this morning. And this was on saving sinners. What does it mean when a sinner is saved up here on the board? The simple gospel has nothing to do with those who will not confess themselves to be sinners. Jesus Christ said, I came to save sinners. Seek and to save sinners. Those are his own words. Well, what does it mean then to be a sinner? The simple gospel has nothing to do with those who will not confess themselves to be sinners. If you must be canonized, if you claim a saintly perfection of your own, the good news has nothing to do with you. Paul's gospel is a message for sinners and sinners alone. The whole of this salvation, so broad, so brilliant, so unspeakably precious, and so everlastingly secure, is addressed this day to the outcast, to the offscoring. It is not your house that is in danger. It is not your body only. It is your soul that is at stake. Quote, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Mark 8.36 Are you wise? This is more worthy than your wisdom. Are you rich? This is worthier than all your wealth. Are you famous? This is worthier than all your honor. Are you princely? This is worthier than your ancestry or your goodly heritage. The gospel is the worthiest thing under heaven because it will last when all other things fade away. It will stand by you when you have to stand alone. In the hour of death it will plead for you when you have to answer the summons of justice at God's bar. And then finally he says, And it shall be your eternal consolation through never-ending ages. It is worthy of all acceptance. The Lord bless you for Jesus' sake. Amen. And as we noted on Thursday, both Paul and Spurgeon 
lived lives of gratitude. You can see that woven into the fabric of his sermons. That's what I like about Spurgeon. He's just on fire. He loves the gospel. He loves his Lord. He's ever grateful. And this is what he was trying to convey. He's ever grateful. I mean, how do you look at the cross or even think about it and not be grateful? How do you get... Let's just stop for a second. Can we be honest with ourselves? Can we, Jim? (laughs) What the heck are we doing getting out of bed in the morning and not being at least content? But yet I'd be willing to bet half of you in here at least probably did just that. I ache. Yeah. Imagine what it was like on the cross. Oh, I this, I'm that. My life is so bad and, you know, so and so. And then, you know, some of you roll over and go, oh, I'm still married to that thing. I'm just saying, I'm being funny. I'm just being funny. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What are you doing? What are we doing? Why are we not ever grateful? Are you breathing? Yeah. You got here, right? You're loved. Listen to this. You ready? If everybody in here turned on you right now, imagine this. Spotlight, all the lights go off, spotlights on you, and all you hear is everybody's like, I hate you. Everybody in here turns on you and says, I hate you. You're a despicable creature. God loves you. No matter what, God loves you. You don't have to find some love deep down inside of you. You don't have to go looking for it and hoping that by the time you're 50 years old, you, you emerge as a butterfly. God created you, and then he tells you, I love you. I love you so much that I want to save you. Not just at your point of salvation, but every day of your life. Save, salvation means deliverance. I want to save you every single day of your life because I love you. I don't care if the wretch next to you that steals the covers says, oh, you know, you used to be, you know, I don't like you anymore. Who cares? I mean, you know what I'm saying. That'd be a bad situation, but who cares? At the end of the day, if the people closest to you turn their backs on you. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Who cares? God loves you. Who can say that? Who else can truly say that and mean it? Nobody. God can. And he proved it. Because he became a man, he became a man and died for you. Is that not proof enough? So what do you think? Guys like Paul and and Charles Spurgeon and myself, and I'm hoping most of you or all of you, what do we, don't you want to be grateful? Shouldn't we like get our perspective straight and say, oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. I got saved, and I am fully not deserving of it. And I got saved. So here's what the Spirit's been saying. Learn to live a life of gratitude. As this goes, so goes your sanctification. Stop trying to be all academic about sanctification. Oh, it's experiential sanctification. (laughs) That phrase doesn't even exist in the Bible. (laughs) Stop overcomplicating it. Learn to live a life of gratitude. When you get there, that's when you're really starting to mature. It's not when you have more language or you're smarter. You're talking to a guy with a reasonably high IQ. 
You want me to get all intelligent and use big words? I can. What's that going to do? Be the opposite of Paul. Be the opposite of Jesus. This isn't about fancy words. Sanctification is not about, quote, education per se or academia. It's about that right on the board. Get up every morning and say, thank you, Lord. I'm still here. I still have a purpose. <laughs> Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. That's a really wonderful place to start every morning, isn't it? Live a life of gratitude. Be grateful. You're alive. And as unlovable as you are, some people love you. <laughs> but even if that's not true, God loves you, right? He does. That's true. That's what I have to, that's what I have to bank on. <laughs> Real nice, DJ. Press Thessalonians 5.16. What does it say? Rejoice always. Yeah. What is that, a punchline? You're supposed to put that with like some soaring eagle over a mountain? Frame it, put it on the wall, sell it for 20 bucks a pop, become a millionaire? No, this isn't, these aren't punchlines. These aren't party punchlines. These aren't things you say, you know, you get tattooed around your wrist. Oh, rejoice always. And you're miserable. These aren't little mantras. These are realities. This is what the Lord who loves you wants for you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You see that? In Christ Jesus. The gospel itself is wrapped into that statement. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Do you see that? Why do you think he says the God of peace? Do you want to be sanctified? Find peace. You want to be sanctified? Be grateful. You want to be sanctified? Pray without ceasing. You want to be sanctified? Rejoice always. Find something to be grateful for every single day, every single moment of your life. And if you're having a bad day, find something in that moment. You don't have to look very far. Now the God, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Not a problem for God, you see. He called you. He's going to sanctify you. These things are going to happen. Now, you can drag your feet and frustrate him, frustrate his will in your life. We know these things. That's what's called the free will. But eventually, he's going to sanctify you. And then ultimately, if you're a savior, or excuse me, if you're saved. So coming full circle now, our final topic of discussion in our list of ways. Remember, we're on part 61 right now. Our final topic of discussion in our list of ways in which the apostles lacked was power. Power, as we've learned, has far-reaching ramifications in our lives, for it takes power, think about it, it takes power to move any and everything in this life, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, there's always something required to move from point A to point B. That's what power does. It moves things. And when you start thinking of theology, it sanctifies people. 
That's what it takes. If you look at the two power sources available, you or God, guess which one's able and which one's not able? You can try in futility to try to deliver yourself. That would be the person who thinks they're inherently good and would exhaust themselves. Or you can depend on the power of God. Those are your options. But one power specifically is uh, required to sanctify us. Things just don't happen. I mean, you can think even in the physical sense. Things just don't. Look. Oh, that was me straining. It's heavy. Look, gravity's pushing this way, right? I have to pick that up. You know what that took? Power. It takes power just to lift something up. It's the same thing. Things just don't happen if there's no power source pushing them. As we've learned in our previous lessons up here on the board, you want power? Get faith. Because faith is power. You want power in your life? You say, oh, that sounds great, Mr. Baldy. I just get up in the morning and pray without ceasing and rejoice always. <laughs> the only reason you don't do those things is because you lack faith. Because if you had faith, you would depend on him. And the very first person you would want to greet every morning is him. But if you don't have faith, he's not the first person you greet. You make the mistake, maybe, of turning over to the wretch. Or what? You go to your job, the business you've put a bazillion hours into, and you want to be delivered by that thing? Eventually it's all going to pay off, right? Eventually all those skipped classes and all that missed time with, with God, all that missed time with reading the Bible, oh, it's so worth it. You wonder why you don't have faith. Faith comes from hearing, hearing what? The Word of Christ. I didn't say that. That's Romans 10, 17. Last time I checked. So you want power in your life? You want to be delivered from the nastiness that you call your pit? The thing you've been moaning about secretly? You want to be delivered from that? Get faith. How do you get faith? Do I have to say it again? This is how you get faith. This is a portion of it. This is part of God's grace in your life. You've been given a spiritual gift to teach you for the building up of the saints. It's not the only way. You want power? You want to be delivered? Faith. How do you endure? We just read that, didn't we? In Romans. How do you endure? How do you get endurance? How do you persevere? How does all that end up with hope? How does hope become character? You have faith. Because a person without faith doesn't endure. They always quit. Why? Because the object of their faith is weak. It's not this. It's not the word of God. It's the word of man. It's not the wisdom from Scripture. It's the wisdom from Oprah. Or wherever you get in your ridiculous worldly wisdom. This never holds up. If this is your power source for sanctification, forget it. It's just a waste of time. It's going to let you down. It's going to lie to you for a little while. That's a trap. You want power? Get faith. That's the start of wisdom. That's what we learned recently. So there's that question that sort of instigated some extra thinking this past week. You might ask yourself, well, how do I know for sure? If I have faith in this in the Word, 
You ready? This is the one nobody likes. The easiest way, you're obedient to it. That's how you know. That's not a legalistic statement at all. It's not religious. It's not Pastor Red trying to put you in some kind of weird bondage. Not at all. You want to know how you have faith in the Word? You're obedient to it. <laughs> right? Go to Philippians 2.12. I don't say these things. This is, the, this is what the Word of God tells us. What do you expect? Okay, take the, take the inverse of that then. What would you expect? Not to be, to be disobedient? Oh, that's a real show of faith. You get what I'm saying? It's actually that simple. But you see, your flesh right now is trying to wiggle its way out. It's doing the MC Hammer, right? You can't touch this. Nobody? <laughs> Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. We spent a little time on that. That's called integrity. How do you know you have faith when you do the same thing when no one's looking? Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Boy, if that doesn't describe our generation, I don't know what... Phew. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. What is that word of life? You ready? What do you think it is? You know what it is? It's the gospel. Holding fast the word of life. It's the gospel, my friends. Refers to the gospel which, when believed, produces spiritual and eternal life, a la Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now that is power. The power is in the word of God. We looked at scripture after scripture after scripture. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. It's unbelievable. So the word of God, and then at the end of it all, by the word of God, he's going to wipe everything out, all his enemies out, done. We're just going to sit back and go, this is kind of cool. Maybe we won't do that. Tough crowd. <laughs> the word of God is all-powerful. So it's, it's, it's funky to think that, okay, I believe that. The word of God made the heavens and the earth. Poof, done. I, I believe that. But I don't believe that it can deliver me from my ridiculousness. What? So you believe that the Word of God can become flesh, die on a cross, be canonized, create the heavens and earth, do all these things, but it's not powerful enough? You don't have faith in its power to deliver you from your piddly problems? That's what we're saying, isn't it? That's exactly what we say through our thoughts and actions. We're like, oh, yeah, it sounds great on paper. I, you know, it's, I got it on a poster. I got, you know, my writing utensils have, like, you know, Scripture on them. And at the bottom of my little notepad, it says, you know, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Ah, yeah. But I don't believe it. What? You can believe all those amazing things that the Word of God can do, but you don't believe that He can actually deliver you 
from what? A crappy boss? A heinous husband? A backstabbing friend? A, a bellyache? You, you think he can do all those things, but he can't deliver you? I mean, come on. But isn't that what we say? Exactly what we're saying. And we wonder why we don't have the power. Because we don't have faith in the object that has the power. That's the requirement. The Word of God speaks often of its own power and its abilities to sanctify whatever it is that God desires to set apart for His purposes. And just to be accurate, this includes everything in the universe, not just mankind. For example, consider the fact that creation itself glorifies God, its Creator, implying that God has sanctified His creation too to fulfill His purposes. Again, think of Romans 1. Speaks to everybody knows God. Even creation speaks of Him. Who do you think made that happen? Who do you think made the sunset or the mountains? Every time I go to Colorado, I just look. I go, how can you not say there's a God? I mean, this is ridiculous. And then the sun shines on him. It's like, oh, my God. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, it just magnifies. like, mind-blowing. How do you possibly say that? How do you look out into the heavens on a clear night and say there's no God? It's unbelievable. So... He sanctified even creation, which means to set apart for His purposes. He set apart creation even to speak of Himself. So it makes sense that the span of the Bible speaks to the Word as powerful, often calling it out with language such as the law of the Lord, let's say in the Old Testament, for example. It's still the Word. The law of the Lord, the Word of the Lord. So we read a passage uh, in Psalm 19 that speak, uh, spoke of the uh, power of the Word. And here's a quick review that we noted on Thursday up here on the board. I'll just give you some of it. Psalm 19.7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That's pretty powerful. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's really, you know what I'm saying? That's like really big deal. Because we're all born kind of simple-minded, right? But then he gives us wisdom. I mean, come on. If you're honest. Some of you are like, ah, I was born wise. All right. Be that way. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I mean, what else is able to lift you up in the morning? You, you abide in this world, you are going to be one downtrodden, depressed person. But yet, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. That's right, you adolescent people. Not oppressive. The commandments of the Lord are not meant to oppress you. Like, you know, when you're a teenager. Oh, mom and dad, the house is just the rules. You, nobody understands me. That's why I wear black, black Sabbath t-shirts and bandanas and smoke weed in the corner. Because nobody understands me. Huh? Why are you laughing? <laughs> You're only like 15 or something. He's like, see, Mom? Sorry to call you out. Not really, but 
The commandments are not meant to oppress you. They're meant to set you free. Open your eyes. Enlighten your eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. You get the point. Such is the power of the word of God. We ended on Thursday with the concept of movement and sanctification up here on the board. Whoop. Oh, I didn't even go through them. Sorry about that. Anytime, I got so excited. I think it was the weed thing. I don't know. Anytime there's godly movement in our lives, under the power of the word and the spirit, we may rightly say that it is a part of our sanctification. The fact that you're here today is not a mistake. The fact that you're hearing my voice today is not a mistake. The fact that you've heard the scripture that you've heard this morning is not a mistake. God moved you somehow. For some of you, there was an even an agent working on his behalf, bringing glory to him to take you here. That's all movement. That's all you being set apart for his purposes. That's all sanctification means. Stop looking for great epiphanies like fireworks are going off. No, the fact that you're here is part of your sanctification. Because you know what? For some of you, a week ago, you would have said, nope. A year ago, nope. Ten years ago, no way. The fact that you're here this morning is a miracle. The fact that God the Holy Spirit's been touching your soul intimately, personally, is a miracle. The fact that some of you, hopefully all of you, that's my prayer, are listening. Just listening is part of your sanctification. That's how it starts. Hearing the word of Christ. That's how you get faith. And from faith comes power. When you have power, you're sanctified. Because now you can move. That's what sanctification is. Anytime there's godly movement in our lives under the power of the Word and the Spirit, we may rightly say that it is a part of our sanctification. And we reflected upon the lyrics of a popular contemporary Christian song. I don't often do this, but I just like the lyrics, so I'm going to go through them quickly. This time I promise to flip the slides. God is on the move by seventh time down. Anytime a heart turns from darkness to light, Anytime temptation comes and someone stands to fight. Anytime somebody lives to serve and not be served. I know, I know, I know, I know. God is on the move, on the move. Hallelujah. Anytime in weakness someone falls upon their knees or dares to speak the truth that sets men free. Anytime the choice is made to stand upon the word. I know, I know, I know, I know. God is on the move, on the move. Hallelujah. And then this last one. I see your generation standing on the truth. In each and every saying, God is on the move. Anytime the gospel stirs a searching souls and someone says, send me, here I go. 
It's a miracle. Come on, people. Is it not a miracle that you're driven now more than ever to spread the gospel? Is that not a miracle? Is it not a miracle that you put aside your self-centeredness and increasingly so in larger doses throughout the week? You're putting aside those things, those self-searching, self-gratifying things for the sake of others. Is that not a miracle, the fact that you, you stingy, brutally wretched thing, that's how you're born, I'm just being fair, now wants to live for others? It's a miracle. I know some of you. It's like a miracle. Right? I mean, come on. What do you think sanctification is? A word? A big word that you memorize so you can go pop it off at, at parties and act all snazzy with your friends? No. This is the real deal. Sanctification. I don't even care if you know that word other than that I can communicate with you. It doesn't matter. What matters is you understand that God is on the move and he's, he's actually changing you. Just like he said he would. You know, like Philippians 1.6. I know that he'll complete a good work in you, that he started at salvation. God doesn't lie. This is what's going on. This is what sanctification is. Reading those lyrics was to amplify our previous principle. Again, anytime there's godly movement in our lives, under the power of the word and the spirit, we might rightly say that it is part of our sanctification. Now, we've got to venture back now to our primary course of study, uh, sort of working framework as it's been over the past few months. We're going to move from this topic with some encouragement from James on the topic of the works of the Word of God. Go to James 1.22. James 1.22. I think James is very often misunderstood as a book, the book of James. It's, uh, it's very often understood because I don't believe that people go to it with the right perspective, with the gospel perspective. So it's easy to become legalistic. It's easy to misinterpret what he was trying to convey. James 1.22, but everything I'm going to give you here this morning, we've studied out in greater detail in the past. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Faith comes from hearing, remember. There's got to be fruit, because that's what Jesus said. A good tree can only produce good fruit, and a bad one only bad fruit. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Well, what do you think? To do anything, you must possess a certain power, right? Go to James 2.17. James 2.17, and this is the nuts and bolts of it. You want power to be delivered? You want power to be sanctified? Well, here it goes. You ready? James 2.17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. In other words, James is saying, you know what? You might have faith. Everybody in here has faith. Is that agreeable? The problem is we have faith in the wrong things sometimes. If it's in the Word of God, then God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word get together, and they empower your very living, their sanctification. If it's in your flesh or in your parents' flesh or the world's flesh or your education or whatever your faith happens to be in, your reputation, your social life, your, you know, whatever, it's dead. Whatever that thing's going to produce, it's dead. It's just dead works. And that's what James says. 
Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So you better have faith in the thing that actually has power, which is what? The Word of God. So don't merely hear it and be deluded. Actually hear it. Have faith in it. Meditate on it. Pray on it. Pray for guidance. Pray for faith like the apostles did. Increase our faith, they prayed for, right? Why? Because they didn't have enough and they knew it. Keep going back to the Word. Go to the source. Diligently seek the truth. And then all these things will be added unto you. Right? That's what the Bible says. Stop playing games. Stop being muddied. Even all of you, as believers, hopefully. Stop being muddied by that lie that there's something good in there. That light somehow emanates from the flesh. Because it doesn't. We just read that at the beginning of class. We're actually born in darkness. There's no light in there. So if your faith is in something that's dead and dark, what kind of works are you going to have? None. What did James say from the other angle? Verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead. So you can have faith in something and it be totally dead. In other words, a faith with the wrong object is not powerful at all. It's not. Go to James 4.17. James 4.17. So what about that? Then he gets really practical. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is what? A sin. So that's sort of a check and balance that he closes out his book with. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So it's possible, in other words, that you do have real faith. You know the right thing to do. You're faithful to it, and your flesh overwhelms you. And that's when you know it's a sin. Debating whether I want to continue. Yeah, how's everybody doing? Drink too much coffee? Oh, I like it. Small portion. Everybody good? Anybody going to run to the bathroom? Would you say it? Probably not. You probably, some of you are like, I really do, so stop talking. Let's, if you're going to do this thing, let's do it. <laughs> this has been our working framework. What the apostles lacked, they lacked understanding, they lacked humility, they lacked faith, they lacked commitment, and they lacked power. And we're supposed to be encouraged by that because these weren't, quote, special men. They were regular guys. We're not supposed to put them up on pedestals. We're supposed to respect them, be grateful for them, love them in our own way, but we're also supposed to be really encouraged by them because they were really imperfect. Like really imperfect, just like you and I. We've already been given quite a bit of scripture on the topic of power, and I truly hope you understand what the Bible has to say on that topic Furthermore, I hope you understand that your ways are not God's ways, nor are your thoughts his thoughts. That's Isaiah 55, 8. You have to start thinking that way, my friends. You cannot think with the lens of the world, the one that was given to you when you were a child. In most of our cases, unless you grew up like, say, like Shawnee or something like that, where the word was like in the house already, chances are you received a lens that was completely faulty. 
that when it when looked through the world itself, all the lies, including, oh, you're such a good person deep down inside, are like budding flowers. They're all like rosy. And when you take the lens away and put the godly lens on there, you see that those flowers are dead right on the stem. <laughs> and you're like, this is my life? It's like a landscape like after an atomic bomb went off. That's my life? That's your life. Oh, I like this other. A lot of people go, oh, I like that other lens better. Right? And they put this one back on. It's like the Matrix, right? I'd rather just live in the Matrix with the fake steak. You know? The old people are still like, will you stop it with the Matrix? <laughs> I'd rather put that thing on, right? And that's how we live. We live a lie. Just like the Matrix. We live a lie. Because for the moment, it tastes better. For the moment, it tastes good. There's no suffering. See, when you take that lens away and it's all dead landscape, and you realize that's how you were born, there's a little bit of suffering in there, isn't there? This is what you know, some people would call colloquially, come to Jesus. You know, there's like a suffering there. There's a, oh man, this is, the, this is the reality? Yeah, that's the reality. Now do you believe the word when it says that you're depraved? Yeah, this is what we're working with. You think you can get out of it from that to heaven? I don't think so. Perfect. Here's the Lord and Savior. What person asks for a Lord and Savior when it's all rosy? Heck, it looks almost like heaven on earth already. What do I need a savior for? My life is good. I make a lot of money. I have a trophy wife. I got a nice BMW. I got uh, approbation. I got uh, reputation. I got a social life. I got, you know, all the stuff. And it's just roses across the board. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those things. I wouldn't call my wife a trophy wife, but not... That came out wrong. Do you know what I'm saying? Even if, even if you... No, do you know what I'm saying? Like, even if your wife was... Oh. Right? It was like, no way getting out of that. Like, moving along. Let me change some slides. <laughs> Little puppet. Uh, you know what I mean. I'm saying nobody should ever call their wife that. That's what I meant to say. Just remember this, and I'll pick a spot to close here. The flesh will always tap itself. For example, human wisdom for answers to life problems. It will always tap itself. That's what the flesh wants to do. It's what it wants you to do. And if you're saved, remember, you do not identify with the flesh. The flesh is dead to you. You identify with the new creature, the same one that's going to spend eternity in heaven. That's who you want to identify with. Satan, the kingdom of darkness, wants you to identify with your flesh because it's wretched and it'll keep you depressed and down and away. So if you're saved, always identify. But your flesh is always going to request, hey, let's tap our human wisdom. Before we go to Scripture, before we bother God, before we pray without ceasing, before we do all those things like the Bible says, let's see if we can conjure up some human wisdom to solve this little problem over there. God's got a lot going on. You know, he don't need to worry about this little problem I got over here. So I'm just going to try to fix it myself. Isn't that what the flesh always wants to do? Yeah. Why? Because then it can take credit. If somehow it's perceived by you that you fixed the problem under the power of the flesh, guess who gets the credit? The flesh does. We call that creature credit. That's in Romans 1 too. Romans 1, T-O-O. 
But as we noted in the blog, oh, there's that blog again. Maybe you should read it. For thought. Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. There's nothing good in you. So what are you doing turning to the flesh? All that thing's going to do is it says, hey, here's a spade, shovel. Let's dig this hole a little deeper. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We'll make some hot chocolate together, and we'll dig the pit, and we'll just jump in there even further. As the Bible tells us, any attempt by the flesh to exert power to sanctify us is folly. Any attempt by the flesh to exert power to sanctify is folly. The wisdom we seek tells us that the Word is our power source, along with the Spirit of Christ. That wisdom warns us of the pitfalls of the flesh. It warns us against practical issues even, such as befriending the world. Whether we like such cautionary measures or not, that, my friends, is not the issue I think I'm going to end there. That is what the flesh wants from us. It's what the flesh wanted the apostles to do. I mean, how often? Let's face it. How, it was so bad at one point, we know from Scripture that Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Your mind is set on the things of this world, on man's estimation of what needs to be done with me the Messiah. So we know that they failed. We know that they lacked understanding. We know that they lacked humility. We know that they lacked faith. We know that they lacked commitment and, of course, power. They all had a flesh. And it was like Paul said in Romans 7. It was constantly nagging them. Yes, they were saved. That wasn't the point. Hopefully they identified with the new creature. But like Paul said, Who is going to free me from this wretched body, this body of death? Same goes for us. You were born with it, and you get to you gotta keep it. (laughs) Until we're either raptured out of here, you die, and what have you. But for now, we're stuck with a really bad roommate who's constantly chirping. Oh no, 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 no. You have the power. They turn on that song. I got the power. You know? Nobody? Nobody? Right? You have the power. It lies to you. Satan lies to you. Says, oh no, you got the power. Don't worry about, don't worry about the word. You totally got the power. Read this little book right here from Oprah or Dr. Phil. (coughs) I just threw up in my Bible. Right? Read this little self-help book. Do this little thing. Listen to your Oh, God, your student counselor at school, or whatever, what do you call it, guidance counselors? Listen to these idiots. No offense, I'm not saying they don't do their job, now I'm going to get in trouble. Listen to these people who have no care whatsoever for Jesus Christ. Listen to them tell you that you can do it on your own. That, my friends, is the start to a long life of exhaustion and misery. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much.
for once again giving us this opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith. Thank you for always being real with us. Thank you for never giving us or providing us with excuses to sidestep the truth that's in your word. Father, thank you for being patient with us, being merciful, gracious, and loving enough to give us the time and the space and the spiritual gifts even to be equipped to take the most beautiful thing, the gospel, out to a lost and dying world, Father. It's just so desperately in need of it and so many cases doesn't even realize it. Father, we just pray that the things we've learned stay with us and that God the Holy Spirit, your Spirit, convict us of such things as we press on today and throughout the week. We ask for traveling mercies for those traveling back home. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.